but I'm going to go straight into our text this morning, and I ask that you to turn with me in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read somewhat of a tragic story. We've got to get through the bad news first before we get to the good news, amen? This is what the scripture says in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the land, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond shall be on the earth. Let me read again verse 10 for emphasis. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You know, if you start off in January reading through the Bible like a lot of people do and you start off in Genesis, maybe in one or two days you get to Genesis chapter 4. And then you see what I believe is one of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible. That Adam and Eve, the first human beings on earth, have their two children, the first children on earth. Cain is born first, he's a tiller of the ground. Abel is born second, he's a tender of the sheep. And in the first four chapters of the Bible, you see murder take place. We see in the book of Genesis, starting off in chapter 1, the grandeur of God's glory displayed in design and the creation of the universe. But in only four short chapters were also revealed the depravity of man in a murder that takes place between Cain and Abel. One of the questions most will ask at the beginning of this reading is why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? Well, the scripture explains it to us in verse 3. It says this, Cain brought an offering of the fruit, but then Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. What this means is that Cain brought some of what he had, but Abel brought the best of the firstborn. The scripture says that Abel brought the fattest of the portions, those pieces which would have tasted the best in his mouth. Those pieces which would have tasted so good. By the way, I'm not sure what you had for Christmas Eve or Christmas lunch. Christmas Eve, my wife fixed roast lamb. And my goodness, was it succulent. Never had lamb before, but I surely will have it again. And Abel, he took the fattest portions, the most richest portions, which would have tasted the best. And he offered his best to God. The scripture says he offered God the first of his flock and the best 
But we do not get a description of Cain. Cain just brought some. Doesn't say it it was the first. Doesn't say it was the best. We have a difference in description. You see, we do not find that quality in what Cain offered. It was not of the first things. It was not of the best things. It was just some. And what happens is, when we do not give to God from our first things, we end up giving to God from our leftovers. Have you ever had a nice meal and maybe you weren't, uh, your spouse wasn't home to eat it, but they came home the next day and what did they get? They got the leftovers. And that's what happens when we give to God out of something that's not our first things. We give God what's left. We give God what's extra. And when we don't give to God from the first, we'll give to God what we're left with. And what's left with is always smaller than what's first. This is what happened with Cain. But God provides him gentle correction. I love what God says. God says, Cain, why are you sad? If you will do well, you'll be accepted. He offers him a chance. He offers him a second chance. Cain, go till the ground again. Cain, go bring your best again. If you do well, you'll be accepted. Don't be downtrodden. But instead of sacrificing his better fruit, Cain sacrifices his brother. What led him to the first murder on earth was jealousy. He was jealous that God accepted the offering from his brother and not his own. And instead of taking up matters with God, he took matters into his own hands. And in the violent plot of Genesis 4, we see the damaging effects of original sin unfold with murder. Let me explain this concept of original sin for a moment. That's what was taught by the scriptures and the church fathers. With the exception of Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve were the only two human beings who ever lived in history to have what we call original freedom. Original freedom means their will, their desire was not influenced by anything other than their capacities of knowledge. Adam and Eve were the only two human beings to ever have what we truly call free will. Let's unpack that for a moment. That literally means that their will, their desire was unrestrained, not influenced by anything else. But there are some who assert today that the rest of humanity has maintained this freedom after the fall of man. Well, I must ask this question. If it was not the will which was affected in the fall, then what was it? If it was not the will of man which was rendered incapable in the fall, what was it? And here's what Genesis chapter 4 teaches us. Genesis chapter 4 teaches us that from the first offspring on earth, the will was inclined towards sin. The will was bent towards sin. Anybody with me today? You see... No one had to teach Cain how to murder. Cain didn't have to go to a murderer 101 session in college. Why was he a murderer? Because Lucifer, the deceiver, is a murderer and a father of lies. And Cain's spiritual DNA from the moment of his birth was tainted with the deception of the enemy. And he came into the earth a murderer. He came into the earth a sinner. And you and I, every person that's ever been born, including the Virgin Mary, I hate to disappoint the Catholics, all born into sin. This is the understanding of what we call original sin. 
that from the beginning we are conceived into the state of post-fall sinful condition. We do not become Adam and Eve all over again and we're given a will that is free to choose. No, my friend, Adam and Eve had free will and they failed. Your will is tainted by the DNA spiritually of sinful condition. You will choose sin until God intervenes. You will choose depravity until the Holy Spirit intervenes in your life. If the will is inclined towards sin, if it is bent towards sin and slanted towards disobedience, then can anyone argue that the will is free? If the will will always choose sin, then how can it be free to make its own choice? The purpose of Genesis chapter 4 is to show us the magnitude, the damage of Adam and Eve's sin that resulted in a tainted offspring forever and ever and ever. We see this firsthand, that the firstborn son ever born, murdered his nearest of kin. Never before had the blood of man been shed on the earth, and it was shed by the one who shared his own house. It was shared by the one who shared his own food, possibly even his clothes or his bed. There is no doubt in our mind that from this point, humanity is sinful. Genesis chapter 4 shows us that humanity is without hope unless Christ and God intervenes. Humanity will not make the right decisions unless God intervenes. There is no doubt that humanity's condition immediately displayed as fallen. But because God is holy, we see him immediately displayed as righteous. See verse 10, here's what God says. God comes immediately on the scene and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, God who's just and justifier, shows up on the scene as a God who will punish sin. God shows up on the scene as a God who will bring correction and rebuking and discipline when sin occurs. So I ask you this question this morning that sets up our sermon for today. What does the blood of Abel speak? The blood of Abel cries out to God from the ground, and I believe the blood of Abel speaks uh, for punishment. It cries out for justice. It cries out for vengeance. Through the 39 books of the Old Testament, the blood of Abel continues to cry out from the ground as mankind grows up and becomes murderers and idolaters and fornicators and haters of God. The blood of Abel is crying for wrath. The blood of Abel is crying for the book of Revelation that God should come and punish the earth. The blood of Abel is calling for the fire that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It was deserved fire. The blood of Abel is crying out for the floods that came down when Noah was there to destroy mankind as the eye of God saw that the earth was exceedingly sinful. After 4,000 years of the Old Testament, the blood of Abel cries out as a testimony to the depravity of man, the wretchedness of his heart. You see, I've spent several minutes talking about the bad news. Is there anyone here today that would like to hear some good news? This, my friends, is not the end of the story The blood of Abel is not the only blood that cries out. The blood of Abel is not the only blood shed that demands God's reaction to something. No, we have a different story. Turn, if you will, with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. I'm sorry, it's singular. New Testament. Book of Hebrews chapter 12, if you will. 
Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be starting in 18. And here's what the writer in the New Testament says. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to the blackness and darkest and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, speaking of the law which occurred on Mount Sinai. He's saying in the New Covenant, we have not come to the fearful mountain. Verse 20. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much a man as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, my friend, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. My sermon title today is this, The Blood That Speaks a Better Word. My friend, I want you to know that the blood of Abel cried out for punishment, but the blood of Jesus Christ cries out propitiation. You say, that's a big theological word, preacher. Let me explain it to you. It's one of the best words in the Bible. It's in 1 John 2, 2. We'll get there in a minute. God told Cain that Abel's blood was still crying out from the ground even after the act was committed. It was still there as a marker of Cain's sin. It was still there as conviction of his sentence. And from this we can see that time does not remove the transgressions of man. What you did 20 years ago was not removed from the mind of God. And when we stand before him on judgment day, every secret thought and deed will be held accountable if we're not covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance. Indeed, as the scripture says, all humanity is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. But let me tell you about this big theological word called propitiation. 1 John 2, 2 says this, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Other translations render that word atoning sacrifice, propitiation. What does that mean? Well, atoning sacrifice gives us a pretty good picture. You see, the word propitiation is translated as a sacrifice of atonement. That means that it satisfied the wrath of God. That what the blood of Abel cried out for, the blood of Christ provided. The blood of Abel cried out for punishment. The blood of Christ cried out, it has been satisfied. Is everyone still following me today? The blood of Abel cried out that man is sinful. The blood of Christ cries out, Christ has satisfied that payment. You see, the blood of Christ speaks a better word than that of Abel. This means that God's wrath was satisfied. The blood of Abel cried out sinfulness, but the blood of Christ cries satisfaction. Propitiation means that God's, uh, Christ's death on the cross perfectly covers the sins of you and I. Propitiation means every sin you've ever committed that cries out from the ground like the blood of Abel is fully erased under the blood of Jesus Christ. Is that good news for anybody today? Are you glad that God no longer sees your sin? Are you glad that doesn't treat, God doesn't treat you as a sinner anymore? He treats you as he does his own son, Jesus Christ. You see, if God still saw our sin 
then he would not be able to treat us like his son. And we would still be living under the blood of Abel because our sin would be still crying out from the ground. The law demanded a penalty when Christ's blood stamped, paid in full. My friend, the blood of Abel cries for punishment, but the blood of Christ cries propitiation, that God's wrath has been satisfied on your account. Secondly, if you're taking notes today, and I hope that you are, the blood of Abel cries for justice, but the blood of Christ cries justification. You see, Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely through His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ, here's that word again, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is just, means seen as righteous, righteous. And he justifies, means he makes us righteous. Do we see the meaning here? God is just, declared as righteous and known, and you are justified, being equated with righteousness through the blood of Christ. If the blood of Abel would have cried out for thousands of years, if the sinfulness of man was on display for thousands of years, and God simply decided to let sinners into heaven, and, and that's blood was never, the blood of Abel was never rendered by punishment, then God would not have been considered just. Do you see this today? Some people say, well, well, why did God have to kill his own son? Why doesn't God just forgive sinners? Let's imagine that there's a man who commits murder. Let's imagine Cain stands before God and says, God, I'm sorry for, ki- for killing Abel. Will you forgive me? Well, just let him off the hook. Let him walk three. Let there be no punishment. Let there be no payment. Let there be no penalty. That would not be a just God. If you commit murder, you're going to stand before a judge. And if you say, I'm sorry, forgive me, the judge doesn't simply let you go home. There has to be a penalty. There has to be a payment. Prison time. Even the death sentence. Justice demands that a penalty be paid. And God knew a penalty had to be paid. Because in the eternal cosmos of the universe, God is a just God. Some people will say, how can a good God... Send someone to hell. My question is, how can a good God not send a sinner to hell? A good God demands that wrongdoings be punished. That may sound bad, but you see, a good God will see that the crime is paid for. A good God will demand that there will be a penalty for disobedience. And this is why God killed his own son. God killed his own son because he is just. God killed his own son because he is righteous. And in order for you and I to go to heaven, his own son had to die so that we wouldn't have to. God did render punishment upon his own son. And my friend, the good news today is that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God so that God will be satisfied with us. I want to tell you something. You can't do anything to make God more satisfied with you. You cannot earn God's satisfaction This is what it means to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus gave up his righteousness so that we could have his righteousness. This is why there can be no such thing 
No such gospel as Jesus plus something else. There are uh, cults and churches that teach Jesus plus something else. This is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus didn't pay 98%, not 99%. My friend, he's satisfied God's penalty for you. A man emailed me a few months ago and said, Pastor, I've been attending churches in the area, and there are other churches that are preaching a gospel about the righteousness of man. This is another gospel. This is not the true gospel. My friends, I praise the Lord that here at Friendship SBC, at least we're doing something right. At least we're preaching the gospel about the righteousness that comes from God alone and not about a man-based righteousness. Praise the Lord, we might not be a perfect church, but if we're preaching the right gospel, then we can be a perfect church. You see, the Mormons teach Jesus plus your works. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach Jesus plus your works. And a long time I would say there is no perfect church, but here's what I realized. I was defining a church by the status of those who attend And this is not what makes up a church. This is wrong. What defines a church is not the makeup of its members, but the makeup of the gospel that is preached there. And the gospel that God has given us is perfect. The gospel is fully sufficient to save. It is without error. In the midst of all of man's problems, the gospel stands alone as sufficient. A church is a place where the word of God is preached. And the gospel is perfect. Therefore, any church... Preaching the true gospel is a perfect church. Because what makes up a church is what's preached there. The gospel. My friend, the blood of Jesus Christ is perfect. It is without error. It is without defect, without stains. Have you heard of these things called the mud runs? People run a 5K and they get covered with mud. And people pay money to do this. Americans are ridiculous. I'm going to tell you what. I did this during the worst six weeks of my life. It was called basic training. We did it every other day, and I hated it. I don't want to do it again. You see, but when you finish the race of the mud run, you're covered in mud. Do you see where I'm going? My friend, the Christian race is not a mud run. It's a blood run. And when you finish the Christian race, when we cross that finish line on that fateful day, we ought to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We ought not to be... About the spotlessness of our skin. But about the perfection of the blood which covers us. And there's some that want to stand there on that faithful day. Without the blood covering them with an air of their own righteousness. This is the gospel of the righteousness of man. But if you cross the finish line and have not been covered in the blood of the lamb. You have failed. If you cross the finish line and you're not covered head to toe in the blood of Jesus Christ. And your own depravity shows through. My friend you will have lost. The victory does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what. You're going to get a crown in heaven, but not because you earned it. You're going to get a crown in heaven, but it has nothing to do with how good you were. Because the only person that can give a crown is a king. And the only person that has the right to a crown is a king. And let me tell you, the crown we'll receive is a crown of glory that comes from the king of kings who bestows it to you, not because you earned it, but because he earned it. Have you trusted in the blood that speaks a better word? 
Have you trusted in the blood? Has anyone here ever been sprayed by a skunk? Anyone? Well, I've heard that if you are sprayed by a skunk, the only way to remove that odor is to take a bath in tomato juice. You see, when you have that stench on you, the only way to remove that stench is to be fully submerged in that crimson red bathtub to remove that foul smell. And the same is true of your sinfulness. That the stench of our sinfulness rises to heaven and it is a foul odor in the righteous nostrils of God. And the only way to remove that foul odor of sinfulness is to be submerged into that crimson flood of Jesus' red blood. It's the blood which gives me strength from day to day. You know this song. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. Sing with me. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. My friend, my plea for you today is this. Have you trusted in that crimson blood? Have you trusted in that blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Have you received Jesus as your Lord? If you are ready to do that today, I want you to come forward at the invitation and say, Pastor, I'm ready to trust in the blood of Christ, which earns my righteousness alone. My sinfulness cries out from the ground that I am Without God, I am depraved, but the blood of Christ can be received by faith today to cover every mistake. A lot of people think, man, they're going to be partying on New Year's and they're going to go into 2014 with the slate wiped clean. My friend, unless it's through the blood of Christ, that slate will still be there. There's no clean slate except with the blood of Jesus.